We're glad you're here. My name is Trent Walker. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the honor and privilege to be able to bring to you some things from the scriptures. Now, I, 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 I don't want to, it's a sermon, but like I've been telling you the last couple of weeks, we're in a series through the summer called Meat and Potatoes. That's kind of Meat and Potatoes answers to caviar questions or ideas. And uh, it's a little bit more topical than I'm usually, than I usually do. I like to, I like to look at the scriptures and I don't necessarily go line by line, but a, a section of scripture will talk about all that it means. And we typically do that for sermons, but there are some things, there's some theological ideas, uh, that, that we are very familiar with the terms, but we don't necessarily, that familiarity with a term does not necessarily equal understanding of the concept. And so we're just, we're just talking through it. It's a good reminder for the pastors. It's a good reminder for the staff. It's a good reminder for all of us to know when we say certain things, what we mean. So we talked about law, the difference between law and grace. And to summarize that, law can change behavior, but grace can change the heart and the motive. Last week, we talked about sanctification, that process. Jesus loves you just the way you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. That process by which he, that he uses to not leave you that way is what we call in the church sanctification. And today, we're talking about sacraments. And it is likely that there will be nothing new. If you've been in the church for a long time, it is likely there will be nothing new for you today. Um, but it is still a good idea for us to remember who we are whose we are, and who God is. And one of the ways God communicates himself to us is through what these, 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 you could call them rituals. They're actually signs and seals, which is a much bigger deal than, than just rituals. Uh, for example, this, this ring I got from Amazon, um, September of 2018. It, I think I paid $18 for it, um, because I had lost my wedding ring uh, when they let me play golf at Wuskawan. Don't know why they would let me do that. Um, and prior to that, I had lost my, my first wedding ring on our honeymoon, and it had been cast in 1890 from a $20 gold piece. And it was my great-grandfather, or my great-great-grandfather's, then my grandfather's, and then mine. And I lost it. But it doesn't mean, just because I lose the symbol of the covenant, it doesn't mean that the covenant is no longer in place. So, uh, but this ring symbolizes that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life until death to another, my wife Lynn. So symbols and signs mean more than the actual this is an $18 ring. If we look at, at the flags that we have over here, you'll see that... that the, we'll take the American flag because that's the one that people, people here know the, the, the best. But the symbol that the flag represents, to some, it brings to mind patriotism and freedom. And to others, they get real frustrated at what that stands for. And I'm not saying right or wrong one way or the other, but if it weren't a symbol of something bigger, it would have no meaning if someone picked that flag up and threw it on the ground. It would have no meaning if you stood up and put your hand over your heart. So a symbol means more uh, than the, a sign and a seal and a symbol means more than, than the fabric that it's printed on. So with those ideas in mind, we're going to talk through the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And again, there will be nothing really new to most of you, but I, and, and I'm not going to use any of the words specifically from our liturgy, because liturgy um, is the work of the people. That's what liturgy means. And sometimes it, it's, it's flowery, and that's good. That's why we use the liturgies. But, but sometimes it's good to hear the same thoughts 
in different words. So that's where we're headed today. So let me offer a prayer, and then we'll talk through. We're going to read from Jeremiah, from 1 John, from Acts, and from 1 Corinthians. Um, Let's pray together. Lord, these are your sacraments that you instituted. These are things you commanded us to keep on doing, to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and to continually, when we, when we gather together, to, 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 to celebrate the Lord's Supper, your body and your blood. Lord, I ask for you to communicate to your people even more today the meaning of these sacred institutions, these sacraments that some call ordinances. They were ordained by you. Lord, this is not my message for them. It's your message for us. So give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive what you would have us see, hear, and receive. And Lord, if there's something I plan to say that you don't want said, I don't want to say it. But if there's something you want said that I haven't thought of in prayer and study, I pray that you make it burn within me so I know it's from you and I will speak it to your people. Pray this in Jesus' name, through the power of the Spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. Now, Rich Mullins is one of, one of my second favorite composer um, or lyricist. Um, he has a song that says, There is a love, there's a loyalty deeper than mere sentiment. There's a music higher than the song that I can sing. There's a love that is fiercer than the love between friends and more gentle than a mother's when the baby's at her side. That idea is what God is trying to communicate to us through these sacraments, these ordinances, these things ordained by God for his people to practice. Now, some traditions have more than two. Uh, The Catholic church, for example, has prayer for, I'm not going to get them all, but prayer for the sick, uh, baptism, the Eucharist, or what we would call uh, the Lord's Supper or communion, uh, marriage, First, I don't know, I don't remember if I said First Communion, um, and, uh, and, and, and uh, profession, what we would call profession of faith, they would call confirmation. So there's, there's seven. Um, the reason in our tradition we only have two, uh, what we call sacraments, is because those are the two that God commanded us to continue to do. So what is a sacrament? Well, the word sacrament, um, and I always get frustrated when I sit in a class and someone goes, according to Webster's Dictionary, so I'm not going to do that, but I'm kind of doing that. Uh, Sacrament comes from a Latin term, sacramentum. And uh, it's not a biblical word, but it is a biblical concept. So uh, it used to be in ancient Greece that you would, uh, or ancient Rome, that you would, if you were making a contract with another person, that you would, if there's money involved, then you would offer a sacramentum. So you would both put earnest money down uh, to, to solidify the covenant. You would, you, would, you would sign your name, but you would have something on the line. And if you were to break that agreement, that contract, or that covenant, and those are all three different things, but um, then you would sacrifice, you would lose the earnest money you put forward. That, that money you put forward was called the sacramentum. Another use of the word sacramentum in Rome was between a commanding officer and his soldiers. A commanding officer would, uh, would offer, his, uh, offer his services. He would, he would promise that he would only lead his soldiers into battle, or he would only give orders that would directly affect the glory of Rome. And his soldiers promised to follow any order the commanding officer gave. And if they didn't, 
they sacrificed themselves. And if he gave orders that were illegal, then Rome would take him and sacrifice him. So when we think of sacrament, we're not thinking of, it's a nice thing that we practice. When we hear the word sacrament, when we, when we understand what it comes from and why the church chose to use sacrament as the word to talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper, it actually represents the covenant of God. That God, covenant is more than a contract, that, that, that God said, and we'll talk about this passage here in a minute from Jeremiah, God said, I will be your God, you will be my people. And we've talked about this before. We've taken it all the way back to Genesis 15 with the whole, that whole thing called the blood path. It's a very confusing passage. But basically what God said is, if, if I break the covenant that I'm making with you, and his name was Abram at the time he became Abraham right after that. Um, if I break the covenant that I'm making with you, Abram, you can spill my blood and dance in it. And Abram, if you or any of your descendants for all of history break the covenant with me, you can spill my blood, says God, and dance in it. In other words, God is the one responsible for both sides of the covenant, his faithfulness and ours. And that goes back to what we talked about last week, that sanctification. God's the one responsible for making us who he wants us to be. But here's, here's a summary of that um, from, from Jeremiah. Now, remember in Jeremiah, you've got Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. We love that passage. For I know, the pl- uh, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. What we often forget, though, is that that promise was given to Jeremiah as God is allowing his people to go into Babylon to be in captivity for about 70 years. And it was a one year for every jubilee year that the people of God had skipped because they just didn't want to be faithful to God's commands. They didn't want to trust him with their livelihood and with their offering of self. Uh, so God knows that they're going into captivity, and he's telling them ahead of time, I know what I'm going to do for you. I plan to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And then just a few chapters later, it says this, this is the covenant says God that I will make with the house of Israel after that time. And so in other words, when they come out of Babylon, after that time declares the Lord, I will put my law in their hands and write it on their hearts. Or I will put my law in their minds, excuse me, and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. That is why we celebrate the sacrament. It's a reminder of the covenant that God has made. It is a reminder of who God is. It is a reminder that God is the one who initiates faith. In fact, that's our next passage from John chapter four. By the way, just an aside, those of you watching on the phone, watching on the phone. Mm-hmm. Nailed it. Uh, those of you listening on the phone can't really tell, but normally when I'm up here and I have the Bible and some people have asked me, what well, you used to kind of hold it. Well, I'm going to tell you because of the, the PMR, this condition I have, the one thing I can't do right now, it's worked into my wrists, my thumbs. I can't hold that Bible like this and not have my hand shake so much that I can't read it. So it's, it is here. It's on, the, it's on here. When my hand, you'll know that when the pain is gone, when you see me hold that again. So from... Uh, Oh, I just turned out. Here we go. From 1 John chapter 4, it says this. Dear friends, let's love one another. For love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God. And everyone, everyone who, uh, everyone, I'm having trouble today. Would some, some of you that are prayer warriors, would you just pray that my mind and my tongue start working together? I'd appreciate it. 
Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. I think that we often just blow past that idea that we don't have to love God first, but God loves us well before we ever love him. The idea that God is the initiator of all things. He's the initiator of creation. He's the initiator of order. He's the initiator of, of, of the creation that we live in. God is the initiator of the covenant of marriage. God is the initiator of, of all redemptive acts, all opportunities for, for, for people to come back to God after we've sinned. Has nothing to do first with us. Romans will tell us that no one is good and that no one seeks God. No one. But if you are seeking God, it means that God first loved you, that God initiated faith, that God pursued you. God pursues you. And one of the things he tells us to remind us of that is baptize in the name of the, uh, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and symbolically speaking, eat my body and drink my blood. It is, it is glorious and it's unusual. You can understand why people thought that the, the early Christians were cannibals because they had a love feast where they ate someone's flesh and drank someone's blood. That's disgusting. And John, the gospel, the, the, the gospel author, who we just read one of his, one of his other letters, but he, he went so far in his gospel, if you translate the Greek, to say, Jesus says, unless you gnaw on my flesh and slurp down my blood, you cannot be saved. That's the, the, the Greek way of saying it. And why does John choose to be that kind of rough about it? In part, because we want to clean things up. That cross up there is very smooth, and it has some kind of gold leaf in the middle, and it's very pretty. But the cross, there's nothing pretty about it. The cross was rough-hewn, and it had bloodstains on it from other people. And the God of the universe chose to go to something that awful so that you and I would never need to do just that. See, God is the one who initiates all things. God is the one who pursues all people. And if you have responded to him, you've responded to him because he invited you to himself, because he chased after you. There are those who believe that if they've walked away for a long time, they've walked away in, even in sin or just not being faithful, they believe in, in their hearts that because it was a long road away, it's a long road back. But not according to Scripture, because according to Scripture, all one needs to do is to repent, to turn. And he has been pursuing you your whole way away. And when you turn around, he's right there, ready to embrace and then we, even in our, in our uh, profession of faith questions, do you embrace him 
as Lord of your life. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That what it, that's what it means every time we celebrate communion or baptism, that, that the hope for baptism with an infant is that there will be a day when the child will embrace the Lord as Lord and Savior. Embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. And, and it, for an adult, it means if, if someone hasn't been baptized before and they come to faith and then they are either immersed or we put water on them, it is a way of them saying, I have embraced Lord, Jesus as Lord and Savior and the old is gone, the new has come, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. So why... We're going, to go, we're going to spend a little time on baptism, then a little time on the Lord's Supper, now that we kind of have that, that umbrella idea. And there's a question that people ask often of people in the Reformed traditions and people in the Methodist traditions and people, of people in the Catholic tradition um, and the Presbyterian church, and why do you baptize a baby? That's a fair question. They don't know what's happening. I think, personally, that that's the beauty of it. Because it, it shows us, it symbolizes, it tells all, it reminds all of us that God is the one who initiates, that God is the one who, 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 who seeks first, then he calls us to seek. So when we baptize a child, we're saying that God has put his hand on this child. God has put his name on this child. When you had your children, when I had my children, I named them. I gave them a name, Elise. Claire Walker, now Sizemore, and Scott, or Cameron Scott Walker, I gave them a name. And the last name they inherited, and there's nothing they can do. They can legally change their name if they want, but there's nothing they can do to change the fact that they are a walker at birth. Baptism, soon after birth, is a way that God is saying, there's nothing you can do to avoid the influence that I'm going to have on you because I have claimed you as Christ's own forever. Now, there's other stuff going on in infant baptism. One of them is that it's not just for the parents or for the family. It's for the people because ordinances or sacraments are, are, are vows that the people make with God and God makes with the people. So God makes some promises at baptism and he says wonderful things about what his desire is. We'll read a passage of scripture here in just a second that kind of speaks to that. Um, and, but the parents make vows not only to the child and not only to God, but also to the people of God. And the people of God make vows not only to God, not only to the child, but to the parents of the child. So it's a communal thing. It's a way of saying that you, none of us can live our lives faithfully with Jesus without participating in the supernatural institution that God chose to use to carry hope to the world. And that is his body, the church. Now I'm not talking, I'm not taking away from what traditions that believe in infant baptism are in, in infant dedication and not baptism. Okay. That's okay. But biblically speaking, this is where it comes from, from, um, from Acts chapter 2, 36 to 41. You know that God had a tradition uh, throughout all the Old Testament that's, that a child would be marked as God's own forever. Male children were circumcised. And then they were, de- they were circumcised and dedicated on the eighth day after they were born. So here we have in, in Acts, the church is just in its infancy. It's just starting to grow. Pentecost has just taken place. And it, and it says this, that therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom, 
whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other, uh, other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So at the very beginning of the church, we hear that God's covenant to Abram and all of his descendants has now been put on this supernatural institution, not an institution of flesh, but a supernatural institution known as the body of Christ, the church. And he says that this offer, this blessing, this promise that I will be your God, you will be my people is not only for you, but for you and your children. That is the theological reasoning behind bringing a child and asking that they experience the sacrament of baptism. Now, we have other baptism in this church, in this tradition. We have believer baptism, someone who was not baptized as a child, who gets, who, who, who gets brought into the faith through the witness of people, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, through watching something online, through going to camp, whatever it might be. Just had a, had a conversation just about a month ago with a young lady who I asked her what, why, how she came to Christ because she came out of some very occultic background. And nothing else worked. And I was seeking and God found me. Well, God had been looking for her all her life, but in the privacy of her own home with no real witness from anyone, God got her. And she's been a believer now for 11 months. And we hope to have the opportunity in, in, uh, in, in August in New Jersey to baptize her in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that will represent, that will be a sign of something a little different than the sign and the seal for a child. The sign of the seal of a child is that all of us already agree that Jesus has already done everything necessary um, for anyone who would receive the promise of God, the salvation that comes through the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his descension into hell, his, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension to the Father. All of that has already been accomplished. Jesus said it on the cross. It is finished. All Christians would agree that the work that Jesus did, the, the, the gospel that we proclaim, is, is finished. When we baptize an infant, we say, we believe and trust God, and the people of God will cooperate with God in growing this child up to know that the gift of salvation has already been bought, paid for, and offered. And our hope in our, in our prayer and how we behave with children is to raise them up so that they know that the gift has been bought, paid for, and offered, and they need only receive that gift for themselves. If a believer is baptized, a new, a new Christian, it's, it's dying to the old self and being raised again. There's more to it. But isn't that glorious? That God would give us something that is very common, water, as a way to remind us that he sought us, that he gave his life for us, and that that blessing is not only that promise that I will be your God, you will be my people, is not only for me, not only for us, 
but for the children that God blesses us with. Communion. It's an unusual thing. We talked about it just a moment ago. Um, In the early church, how it was practiced and what was practiced was just... Wasn't, it wasn't seen, it wasn't looked at well because of how it sounded when we talk about drinking blood and eating flesh. But I want a little bit of background on it. We're going to read Paul. This was important enough that Paul didn't learn about the last day, the last supper from the other disciples. He learned from Jesus himself. When Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, he also joined him and trained him up to give him that personal uh, discipleship program that, that the other apostles had when they were walking, talking, knowing, and loving Jesus. Paul got it too, but Jesus told him what happened on the night he was betrayed. And we'll read that in just a second, but there's something, there's something that we don't always understand about communion. There's a piece of communion, the blood of the new covenant. When Jesus takes the cup and he pours it and he says, this is my blood, which is for you. It's the blood of a new covenant. We don't always understand that when young Jewish men proposed to young Jewish women, yes, those marriages were often arranged, but when it was time for them to be betrothed, just like Joseph and Mary, when it, when it comes time for there to be a legal contract between those two families and between those two people, that the young man would come and he would have a glass, a, a chalice of wine, and he would pour the wine out and say, this is the blood of a new covenant poured out for you. And if she took the cup and drank it, they were now engaged. So it was a way of saying, will you marry me? Yes, I will marry you. And then there's a legal binding. So when Jesus is sitting with his disciples and he says, this is the cup of, uh, this is the blood of a new covenant. He's saying, will you love me and honor me and share with me all that is to come for better, for worse, for richer, for in sickness and health through laughter and tears. Will you be faithful to me as long as your life shall last? Because that's what I'm doing for you. It's a beautiful beautiful way of thinking of Christ's sacrifice that I will be faithful to you as long as your life shall last. And we're saying, yes, Lord, I will, as far as it depends on me, I will be faithful to you as well. And somehow, some, sometimes we, we start looking at communion as a way of gauging whether someone is worthy of the love of Christ or not. That person shouldn't be taking communion. They've done this. That person shouldn't be taking communion. They've done this. I knew, I knew some World War II vets at my former charge that because they had killed in war, never took communion, not once. And I see that as so tragic because it's just God's, it, 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 it just, it's God's way of saying, it doesn't matter who you are of what you've done. I still love you. And it's a way of people saying, I know that I've done wrong, but Lord, today, from this day forward, I, st- I love you and I pledge my life to you. It's a, it's a sacrament. It's a vow. It's a way. Of, and, it, and it's also something not just symbolic, but it's a means by which God imparts grace to us. How? I don't know. John Calvin says, I would rather, I would rather experience it than understand it. Here's the passage. It reads like this. For I received, this is Paul talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what also, what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And by the way, I get, pastors will tell you, I get really uptight um, around here when we, when, when people want to say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Um, that's not what Jesus says. 
And if it's a sacrament, it's something that he wants. If we're making pledges to him and him to us and he's giving us grace, I think we should get it right. Um, His body was never broken. It was pierced, but no bones were broken. His body was never broken. So anyway, that's an aside. Probably going to make the sermon go longer than the time's allotting. The same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone's hungry, you should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And then he says, when I come, I will give further instruction. Why read that particular passage today? Well, because that's the, those are the words of institution. That's what Christ told, that's what Christ told his disciples. And that's what, and then Paul takes it and says, hey, I'm seeing some things in the church that I don't like. I'm seeing some things that, that people, the rich people are bringing food for this, for this big supper that everyone has when they have communion and they're eating it all. And then they're the people that don't have much food don't get any. So he, people are using something that God has instituted as a way of saying one person is greater than another person. And God, the great equalizer says, there is no Jew or Greek. There is no male or female. There is no Scythian or barbarian. We're all the same in Christ. So these, these, these sacraments remind us that God is for us, not just for me. And when we eat the bread and we drink from the cup, we are making a commitment to Christ again. And he is reminding us of the commitment he made from Genesis chapter 15 and from Jeremiah 32 and on and on and on and on and on again. Now, we're not celebrating the sacrament, either of the sacraments today, but we are. We're reminded of who God is, who he sees us to be. We're participating in his work in our lives so that we can become the people we already are in Christ. We're choosing grace, getting what we don't deserve, over law, which only changes behavior. And we're saying, Lord, I will be faithful to you as long as my life shall last, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, through laughter and tears. I will be faithful to you as long as my life will last. And the Lord says, I will be faithful to you as long as my life shall last and his life is everlasting. There's nothing you can do to stop God from loving you. And baptism, both forms, and communion tells us that over and over and over and over again. That is why it's something that we talk about. That is, something, that is why it's something that we practice because we want to be faithful to the one who's been faithful to us. Let's pray. 
Lord, please do not let my stumbling of my, uh, my words, well, my, my brain and my mouth didn't want to work right, real well together. Don't let my stumbling be a stumbling block to anyone. Help them remember what you told them today, what you want for them today, and what you want from them today. Lord, I ask the same thing for me. Lord, next time we get to celebrate baptism or communion, remind us that you're making promises to us, not only us making promises to you. Let us see it as your faithfulness, as a sign, a seal, and a symbol that you are everlasting, you do not change, and you want the same thing for us and from us that you wanted thousands of years ago. We pray this in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen.